Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. As we found out last week, technology is a dangerous thing. But uh, we have been going through, and as we've gone through, we have, in these last couple of weeks, hopefully, when it comes to Genesis, be able to understand that the very first verse, God created everything. And then the last week, as we looked at uh, the passage there in Genesis chapter 1 into the early part of Genesis chapter 2, that God was able to take uh, chaos and come up with a beautiful, orderly creation. And uh, we had slides for this last week, and I just want to run through these real fast because you didn't see these last week. Um, see, here we go again. We get up here and no internet connection. There's that. Okay, good. Okay. Um, okay, there's, there's the monkey that you did not see last week. Okay, that's not the important thing. Okay, but I did show that in case those that, you know, didn't see that last week. But what I wanted you to see last week was when the scripture starts off in Genesis chapter 1 and it talks about things being, uh, looking at creation and that it's without form and void. You know, what does that mean when it's without form and void? It's just simply this, is that when God goes through and you have the six days of creation, there's an order to this where he is answering that without form and void. It'd be a way of saying that there's chaos. Because with, without, with, with those things that are without form are formed. You look at the first three days of creation, you have light and dark and sea and sky, the firmament being separated from the firmament, the water being separated from the water, and dry land and suddenly vegetation appearing. That in the orderliness of this, that you then see in verse, or days four through six, a parallel uh, thing that goes on where God takes what is void without life and he fills it with things that have energy. And as you look at uh, the different days, you find with light and dark, you have the comparative, see this technology is working, this is the same, sun, moon, and stars. Uh, you see fish and fowl and you see animals and humans. What God does is he takes what has no shape and has no life and suddenly in a very organized fashion, a very orderly fashion, he does this in six days. We were very confident as you look at the scripture last week uh, that you're talking 24-hour days because it gives uh, days and it says evening and morning was the first day and that's how the Jews would have understood a day to be not thousands and millions of years, uh, that God did this all in a six-day period of time that he brought order to his creation. So last week we saw that. Now this week we are going to something completely different. I do have, if we can get this up here. When you read your, your scripture and you look at verse number four, and we're all there at this point, are we not? Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is significant as you look at the book of Genesis because you have to realize something. That when you have your Bible in your hand, there are certain things there that the original writer did not put down. 
Okay, uh, understand this, as you get to the New Testament, uh, it wasn't as if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus began to speak, went from a black pen to a red pen. Okay, that's a relatively new invention in the last about 150 years that you had what were known as red-letter Bibles. Okay, that, that's a new thing. That, that's not uh, originally in our Bible. But do you realize this, is that when you read through your Bible, there were no such things as chapter and verses. There weren't any of these things. In fact, uh, the earliest that we may have seen even chapter references in our Bible uh, was uh, in about uh, four or five hundred years after Christ. They have some manuscripts that seem to maybe that these books of the Bible are set up by some chapters, but that's the earliest that they have. Not to the 1200s that you have an individual that actually sets up uh, chapters in the Bible that he organizes. And in the 1500s, you have an individual who finally, in his Greek uh, New Testament, comes up with chapters and verses. And uh, when you have the, the Geneva Bible, which is the Bible that the pilgrims brought across the ocean with them when they came to the New World, you say, why? Because they weren't carrying the King James Bible because they were persecuted by King James. They were carrying the Geneva Bible. Uh, that Bible had chapters and verses in it. And the chapters and verses were designed for a person to be able to easily find. So even today, we're thankful for this because as a pastor, I can say, up, say this, you know, take your Bibles and turn to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, and you can find that and find that verse very easily and be able to do that. The reason I go through all of that is because Moses does arrange his book in such a way for you to follow a pattern. And it deals with that very statement we read in verse number four, these are the generations of heaven and earth. If you were to read through the book of Genesis and just ignore the verse references and the chapter references and just read through it, what you would find is going through the scripture of Genesis, you would find this statement 11 times, basically 10 different sections where it would say, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. You get to chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, these are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah as you get to chapter 6 and verse 9. And as you go through, you'll find this to be the case. And you go, well, what is, what is Moses attempting to do? Well, what he's doing is giving you his chapter breaks. Okay, here's a new section for you to read. Because what I'm going to tell you in chapter 2 and verse 4 is here we have, and you think of that word generations, not talking about the heavens and the earth. It's talking about the descendants after them. So when you read Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, what we're looking at is the things after heaven and earth had been created. What goes on with them? Not the heavens and the earth, but the things that were created. What are they doing? And then when you look at chapter 5 and verse 1, you're going to say, we're not looking at Adam because you're past Adam. He's been dead for a while. At that point, what you're doing is you're looking at the descendants of Adam. What they're doing, his offspring. You get to chapter 6 and verse 9, you're looking at the descendants uh, or Noah and his descendants. And so you have these different things that are going on here. And so these chapter references come up, and what you have in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, there are going to be some stories that deal with creation, but what 
Moses is attempting to do by movement of the Holy Spirit is to say, okay, God created the heavens and the earth. Now let's see what the offspring does. You go, what's the offspring here? It's going to be referring to the first two individuals on the face of the earth, Adam and Eve. And what you're going to find is that they're put into a perfect environment. We'll see next week that they mess it up. They do their own thing, and there's a series of consequences that come out of Adam and Eve and their children that they set the whole of the universe on a course by their sin. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that creation still groans, waiting for that, that error, that sin to be fixed permanently. But what we have in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4 is the starting of this section where God's saying, okay, let's look at what happened to Adam and Eve, these first two human beings, and what God, or uh, what happened to them, and how God responded. And when we look at this chapter, we're going to go through all of it this morning, we're going to find this theme that's going to come up, is that God gives uh, mankind a perfect environment to worship and fellowship with him. That was God's intent from the beginning of uh, humanity when he created human beings. He intended for human beings to live in a perfect place, in a perfect environment, so that they could worship, serve, and fellowship with him. And we're going to see that this is going to be a theme right on through the last pages of our Bible in the New Testament, that this was God's intent. And so what you have uh, in this passage this morning, you're going to see a lot of perfects. In fact, all of my points are going to be perfect. Okay, and so if you're trying to figure out what the points are, uh, they are perfect points. The first one being this is that there is, as you look at this story of this, well, generations of the heavens and earth, the offspring, what's going on there, you find this, that there is a perfect person. Okay, God creates a perfect person. You have this account as you go through that it talks about the generations and what's going on. In fact, uh, this is a time frame where mankind is uh, created. It's a time before uh, verse number five. It hasn't rained on the earth. There's not man to till the ground. You go, well, what's going on there? Well, it's just simply saying this, that, well, the flood hasn't happened. Mankind hasn't, had to sin, hasn't sinned yet, so they're not having to till the ground. I mean, th none of these things have happened yet. And God forms this individual. And what you see is that suddenly, and, and the, the Jews that were reading this would suddenly recognize this, that there's been a name change here of God. Look at uh, verse number four. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the... Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And you look through here, and this name, the Lord God, comes up. You go, well, what's going on here? Well, if you read chapter 1, and you read this, it says, in the beginning, God, Elohim, the supreme being that is greater than anything else in the universe, this one created everything. But what chapter 2 and verse 4 does is that it transitions, and so the individuals that are reading this, who would have been Jews standing on the border of the promised land, waiting to go into this, would suddenly see a name that they're familiar with. 
the name the Lord. We would know it as Jehovah, or as the Hebrews might say, Yahweh. This uh, God, Jehovah, that this is the name that God said, okay, this is not a new name to you, but it's the name I want you to refer to me as when he, he is talking to them in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. This is the name that I want you to know me as. I am. I am the one who's self-existent, but I am the one who is in relation to you. I care about you. As a people, I want to take care of you. Suddenly they're reading this passage, and as they're reading this, they're going, okay, here's this God who created everything oh he's the jehovah god who says he cares about us he's the one that has care for us and has concern for us that this god is that elohim is the same as jehovah the one who created everything is the one who's also concerned about us cares for us and as you see this story of this perfect person as, it's cre he's, as he's created, you find that God takes a special care in this man. God does not do what he does for any of the rest of creation for what he does for man. See, the difference here is that you suddenly have this man who is there and god has created all the animals and he's done this but verse seven it says in the story it's going back to day six and telling us what happened on that day when mankind was formed and it just simply says this that the lord god formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul what God does in the rest of his creation, he merely speaks and it comes into existence. But here what you see is that God, like a potter, if you've ever done pottery, it's a very involved process. You don't stand away from it and it happens. No, it is something that you must be involved in. And as you think about this, God goes from just merely speaking to now grabbing dust off the ground and shaping this into what we now call human humanity human beings he shapes this dust of the earth and then breathes into it the breath of life i mean there's a closeness there because god not only uses as we might say his hands to get involved in creating us he actually uses his own breath to give life to that which is lifeless and he breathes out what he does here uh, by his own breath. This a term for breath is uniquely uh, used of God in his relationship to humanity. That God breathes into mankind the breath of life. And man becomes a living soul. Now you say the animals were described as living souls too. Yeah, they were, but they weren't created this way. There's a complete difference because if you ever, and this is something that just totally destroys the idea of evolution, we were not crafted uh, as a long line in the history of animal life and suddenly we are the most superior of it. No, mankind is created in a completely different way. A completely different way with God's interest and care that God breathes into humanity the breath of life. What he's done, he said, okay, I'm going to make something in my own image. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to personally be involved in the creation of this being and breathe into him my life. 
And that's what happens uh, for humanity. This is what makes mankind different than all the rest of creation. Now, it is interesting to note that this name that God eventually gives to this man is Adam. And you say, what does it mean? Dirt or earth. I mean, that's what he's going to be made from. Uh, and he is ultimately, it's a play on the idea of ground and earth, which is Adam. Uh, his name's Adam. He's just dirt that God has magnified and glorified to something that reflects his image here on the earth. This thing that God breathes life into is able to be creative like God, is able to rule like God has a conscience and reason, and is able to do things that nothing else in this universe has. And it's because God took special interest in this being. Mankind is unique in the universe because they reflect the image of God and that they were created by the personal interaction of God. And so what you start the story off with is going, okay, God creates this perfect individual that's going to be a reflection of who he is by his own personal interest and his own care in this whole story. And what God does is that God puts this individual in what we would describe as a perfect place. Okay, you have a perfect person who's put into a perfect place. Look at verse 8. It says this, that the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now we read this story and we oftentimes forget that it's not the, the garden called Eden, it's the garden that's in Eden. God has a region of the world that he decides, this region of Eden, that he's going to put a special place in the center of this called a garden. And this garden is an incredible place as you look at all there that is uh, going on with this. But I'm going to at least explain to you the significance as you go through the rest of Scripture of what this word garden is. As individuals translated this, uh, the Hebrew, into Greek, what they began to translate this word garden as is with the word that we oftentimes translate paradise. That's what the Greeks called a garden, a paradise. And so what you have is this, this being is put into what we would use in our terminology as a place that is incredible, that is beyond imagination, that's a paradise. That's the terminology that is used to describe this place. And you go through the rest of Scripture and you think about what else is described as paradise. Okay. Think about this. You have a man who has been a rotten individual who has gone his own way, done what he's wanted with his whole life, uh, is perhaps a murderer, he's a thief, he's a rioter, he's a, re a rebel, and he is on a cross next to the Messiah. And this man is there and he is cursing everybody around him, including the other people dying with him. But in the process of time, this individual figures out that this one that's in the center cross is completely different than who he is. He's not responding in the ways that uh, everyone else is. In fact, what he's doing is seeing is that this one's responding with kindness. 
with things undeserved for the people who are mocking him around this. And all of a sudden, this individual realizes, I'm not dealing with somebody who is like everybody else here on earth. And so he finally shuts down the other thief. And and in his last words that we have recorded is that he just simply says to Jesus on the cross, remember me when you enter into thy kingdom. And Jesus' response is this, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise you go well what's that place you get a little bit more of a description of this as uh, you get to second corinthians chapter 12 you have a man there by the name of the apostle paul who is recounting an occasion where an individual went up to heaven actually saw visions of things in heaven and in chapter 12 and verse 4 second corinthians he says this man entered into paradise and saw things well, not lawful for man to utter. It's really impossible to describe what's there. And then you think about this as you go to the end of your Bible and in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 7, you find that the people that overcome, those that are saved, are ones who shall be a part where the tree of life shall be at, and it is paradise. See, what you have is something in the Garden of Eden that is comparable, and we'll, we'll, we'll make some more connections here in a second, that is comparable to the place that God has prepared for those that love Him. It's a perfect place. It's a paradise. And when it comes to Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 8, this garden, which eventually is the term paradise throughout the rest of Scripture, is describing a place where God created everything perfect. And it's a place that's just, what we would say like th this way, it's just like heaven. And here you have this man who is taken and he is placed in this garden, this paradise, in the midst of a whole region of the world that's there at the time. He's stuck in this garden, this paradise, and he's placed there by God. God says, I want you to be here. It's your place to be at. And so mankind, he's created perfectly by the direct act of God. He's put into a perfect place. And as you read through this passage, there is perfect provision. Perfect provision. Everything is taken care of. As you look at the description here in uh, verse number 6, it's not that it rains or does anything like that, but when it talks about the vegetation and everything that is there, there's not rain, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. What God has is some sort of system, whether it's mist coming out of the ground, some talk about subterranean water, they really can't figure out what's going on here. What you have is that everything is being watered. A divine sprinkler system, if you want to think of it that way. It's, it's taking care of everything. Everything that's needed for growth in the plant world is there and being taken care of. But you see also as you read, and it, we had this lengthy description there, that as you look at verse number 10, there's a river that went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became four heads. And there's these different rivers, the, the Pishon and, and the... Um, the Gihon and the Hittikel and the Euphrates. And you go, these rivers. And you go, where are these rivers at? Don't know. We know where two of them are at now presently. 
The Tigris and Euphrates are some of the healthiest and life-bringing rivers in the world. They go through desert regions and bring life to places that should not have life. There is a, you know, a vitality, a provision of water that these things can provide. You have these rivers that are there and you just say, well, where are these rivers at today? I don't know. I, knew the, I know the flood was a major reconstruction project. You know, people are like, well, where's the Garden of Eden? I'll just throw this out here. Where's the Garden of Eden? Nobody knows. You know, some say, well, it was in the Middle East, or it was in Mount Ararat, or it was someplace else. The Jews suggest this. Maybe this place was Jerusalem. Say, why is that? Because this is where God eventually puts his temple, puts a place where he's going to be worshipped. It's the place where he finally puts his place of worship and the end of everything. That this is, you think about the garden. What is this? This is a place that's much like the temple and the tabernacle. It's a place where God can come and fellowship with people. It could be Jerusalem, but nobody knows. But what we're getting in this Genesis account is that you have these mighty rivers that if the water out of the ground's not enough, you've got these rivers that are feeding, uh, this one river that feeds all these other great and magnificent rivers in the world. It's taking care of these things that you have provision there of water. And you think about the trees that are there. Look at verse number nine again. It says, out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. Okay, that's the only way to describe a good meal. You got everything you want to eat. It's there, it's beautiful to look at, and it tastes incredible. It's good. God has it there. And so you have both the provision of water to take care of the vegetation that's there. You have these trees that you look at that are everything that a person could want to eat. And you also look at the bounty that is there. You might have missed it here. Verse number 12. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone. And you kind of go, why is that there? Because you suddenly have gold and precious stones mentioned. Did we, did we not say that there, there's an element of paradise here that we're talking about? I mean, think about what heaven's described as. It's a place where the gold is a, well, pavement for the streets. Where all the precious stones that people fight over are the stones in the wall of that city. And you think about this. You have the river that flows by the throne of God. And you have the tree of life that is in heaven. See, what you're going to see is what some describe, and we'll get to this, paradise, and some describe it as man's sins, lost, but what? Paradise regained. Mankind in the end of human history is able to be in paradise again. What God created in abundance at the beginning for mankind to dwell in, at the end of time, there's a possibility of mankind to dwell in a place like what we find in Genesis chapter 2, a perfect place. But you see this, there's, a, there's abundant provision. There is all the water that you'd possibly need, all that you would want to eat. And then even with, a, if you think about the gold and the gems and all that that are there in this place, you have an abundance of everything, provision of all kinds. And so you have abundant provision, a perfect provision. But number four, you see this, that there's a perfect profession what do you mean by profession? A perfect job. You look at uh, what you find in verse number 15. It says this, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it 
and to keep it. Now, just think about this. Some of you uh, spend much time in your flower gardens and in your gardens, uh, and you just think about this. What would it be like if everything got watered automatically and there were no weeds and the things could just grow? What would you do? You would take a chair and you would just sit there and watch it. Do nothing. And that's kind of what God has done for Adam here. I'm going to give you a job, and it's this. You're going to, as it's described there in verse 15, to dress it and to keep it. You're going to serve it and to keep it. You're going to take care of it, and you're going to keep it. You're going to guard it. And you're thinking, guard it from what? I don't know. Someone suggested maybe it's they didn't do their job in chapter 3 where they didn't guard it. Satan comes in. But the fact is, is what, what is there to do? Now, understand, is this is a passage of Scripture that makes it very clear that work was not as the result of sin. Okay? Don't you ever suggest to fellow workers and the like that it's you know, a horrible thing. I hate work. It's, we wouldn't have work if it wasn't for, you know, mankind being sinners. It's because of our sin that we have to work. And the answer is no, God had work before sin was ever in this universe. In fact, work is a good thing. In this case, what the work is, is kind of a, 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 a way of Adam being able to worship God, because you think of the terminology that's there, the word uh, there that is for serve is the idea of work that was used in the temple. It's often connected to worship. It is connected to the priestly duties as they go about and they just do things there in the temple. It's an opportunity to worship God, to serve God. He gets to go through and look at these things and take care of them. And in the process of this, he's got an opportunity to praise God as he sees all of these things. And to keep the idea there is uh, one uh, is a term that was used throughout the rest of Scripture where the individuals were to keep the Word of God, to guard this, to take care of it. It's something that if a person really loved God, what would they do? They would keep his commandments. Guard his commandments. Take care of those things that God said. I mean, this is a perfect job uh, that he has, that it requires no real effort, but yet he still has the opportunity to prepare a place here and work in this place where God is going to come and fellowship with him on a regular basis. As we find in Genesis chapter 3, he comes in the cool of the evening to fellowship with him. And he's got the opportunity to just kind of work in this. This place where God's going to come and fellowship and be with him. And so he has the perfect profession, the perfect job. And he has, in number five, the perfect prohibition. Thought about this. Uh, you say prohibition, okay, rules. Wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where there was only one rule? Thought about this. Someone was talking about uh, the past week and something about taking a driving test. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if there was only one rule of the road? And when it came to be to take the driver's test, you just walk in. It's one question. You answer it and you're done. Wow, that was easy. We live in a world filled with prohibitions and commands all over the place. 
everywhere we turn there's a rule about something or a command about something and you're just thinking wouldn't it be nice just to have it all in one book i mean i remember a university president talking one time to us as uh Uh, pastors and the like and he said it would be fantastic if we could get the rule book narrowed down just simply to this love god he goes but you're dealing with sinners and all sorts of things so he goes our rule books are 40 50 pages in length because that doesn't work but think about the prohibition here fairly simple as you look at verses 16 and 17 The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And you think about that first statement in verse 16, it's the super, as one has described it, the super abundant yes. You can eat of every tree of the garden. You think about this, thousands upon thousands of trees that are pleasant to the eye and good for food. You got all those choices. You can have all of them. You can you know, eat any of them. You can eat them in combination, whatever. They're yours to eat. But there's one tree I don't want you to eat of. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One is described it this way, to eat from this tree would bring the experience of good and evil. Knowledge and understanding of that on an experiential level, not a factual uh, level, an experiential knowledge. You say, well, why did God stick this tree in the garden? I mean, he's got all these trees. Why have this one tree that he says, don't eat of that tree? Ever think about that? You know, he would have solved the world of world. You know, in your mind, you, you know, he would solve the world of problems. But what he's giving is mankind an opportunity to show loyalty and love to God. We think about what the New Testament says about this: If ye love me, what? Keep my commandments. Now think about if there was never a choice. And they go through the whole of the garden, you're going, well, they, they don't have an opportunity to disprove their love to you or prove their love to you. They're just here. There's nothing that is there that they could possibly show that they don't want to follow you and to love you. You just made it so that they couldn't have this. What God does is provide an opportunity for these individuals to show their love for God. That's what it's there for. And it's not that Adam and Eve could complain that there wasn't a whole bunch of other things that they could eat from. You know, they, they, they could have said, well, there's only one tree in the garden and you know, then there's this other tree and there's only two trees and there's like not a whole lot of choices. No, there's a whole bunch of choices for them to eat from that God says, enjoy all of those, but don't eat of that tree. And God says this about it, that if they eat of this tree, as it says at the end of verse 17, thou shalt surely die. And the the Hebrew behind it is this, dying thou shalt die. You'll start the process of dying and it will continue on until you really do end up with the final consequences of dying. Now understand this term, dying, is the idea, I've told uh, you a number of times to do it this way and think of it this way, that death is a separation 
Okay, think about this. It's that, that's the, the best way to define what death means. Because when we talk about physical death, we're talking about our body separating from our soul and spirit. Okay, that's, that's a death. But you can also have spiritual death. And you go, what do you mean by spiritual death? Well, this is a person who has separated themselves from God by sin. And so you'll see throughout the scriptures that your iniquities separate you from your God. You go, well, the sin there is causing a spiritual death, a separation from the one who gives life. And as you look at sin and its consequences, it causes all kinds of separation between people. It brings death to relationships. It brings death to friendships. Uh, When sin happens, there's separation that happens there. But ultimately, as you look at the Scripture, when it says, dying thou shalt die, if you die... Your body physically separates from your soul and spirit. You die that way and you haven't fixed the problem of being separated from God, then you will surely die. You'll be separated from God for eternity. That's what the scripture talks about as a second death because as you read what it says about the second death in Revelation, those people who are raised, their bodies are raised to stand before that great white throne judgment to meet with their soul and spirit, they're cast into a lake of fire, body, soul, and spirit. So it's not talking about the fact of a physical death there. What it's saying is body, soul, and spirit, they're cast in a lake of fire, and the words they will hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you, and there's a separation for eternity. See, what God says is this, you eat of this fruit and you're surely going to die. There's going to be all sorts of things that suddenly are separated. No longer the unity that, was the, that is in this universe that God has, this fellowship that he has with his creation and the like. No, suddenly there is going to be introduced separation. Oh boy. Uh, separation in the whole of everything. And as you go through the life and uh, everything that goes on there, what you find is that these people have just merely one choice you can either serve god or you can serve self you can show your love by god by doing what he says you can show your selfishness by doing what you want and the end result of that is that they would surely die and that is going to be the case And so you have the perfect prohibition, the perfect command, as you might have it. But then you have, as number six here, the perfect partner. In verse 18, you have something going on. And it's kind of shocking as you've read the story to this point in Genesis, where as you read through the creation account, everything that God says is, it was good, it was good. It was good. You get to verse 18 and it says this, the Lord said, and you see there in most of your Bibles that you have uh, the italics there. It is, it's not there in your Hebrew. It just simply is read this way, that the first statement of God here is this, not good. You know, what's not good? Well, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Now think about uh, what it says here. God is uh, one who looks at all of creation. He has man there, and he says it's not good for man to be by himself, to be alone. And 
He's going to create what God says, I'm going to make a help meet for him. Or as one that would say, if you put it in a little bit better English, it would be this way, a helper suitable for him. Or a helper that's a counterpart to him. Now people reading this at times will look at this and go, well, what he's saying is this, is that the woman is a slave. You know, she's a helper. She's a slave. And what you have to do is to go through the scripture and see what that word helper applies to or actually who it applies to. Because you go through the scripture and you look through this, this is not a bad time. As you go through a bad word, 16 of the 19 times that it's used in the Old Testament scriptures, it's describing God. It's describing God. Uh, you have some passages that you could take a look at. Exodus chapter 18 and verse 4. 1 Samuel 7 verse 12. Psalm 22 and verse 2. Or Psalm 46 and verse 1. Where God is described as a helper. It's the very same term that you find here. And you wouldn't say that God is uh, you know, something to be disrespected or dishonored. Or that he's some kind of slave. The answer is no. What it's referring to when you have this idea of helper, it's one who has the ability to make an essential contribution. One who provides what is lacking. And what God says is this, is that as man is there and he's alone, what the woman is able to do is provide what is lacking in the man, what man alone cannot do. And one has put it this way, what the man lacks, the woman accomplishes. This is not a, a bad thing that God says, I, I'm going to make someone that's a helper to him. Because she's going to be able to accomplish things he can't accomplish. And he's uh, going to need her. And the reflective on that is that the man is going to be able to do things that she can't accomplish on her own. Can't do that. And as you see this, it's good for man not to be alone. Uh, it is a point that it's good for us not to be alone god created us for fellowship with him but he also created us for fellowship with other people not to just be one who is a hermit and and goes into their shell and will not ever come out no god created us that he said no it's not good for you to be alone there needs to be relationships even in this life not only with god but relationships in this life that need to happen and god says this isn't good so what does god do we know the story, we're aware of it, that God uh, takes Adam and actually what Adam is doing is he's doing what God's doing. You may have not caught that as you read through the story. Verse 19, it says this, out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam uh, called every living th creature, that was the name thereof. You go through the first part of Genesis 1, and what's God doing? He's naming all the stuff that he creates. And here, what God is now doing, God's bringing the animals before him, and what Adam is doing is this, is Adam is naming all of these things. He is reflecting the image of God here on earth as he's taking up his responsibility to rule on this earth, to have dominion over it. He's actually naming everything. And as the one who's naming it, he's got the responsibility, the right over them. And so what God's doing is he's simply having Adam do what he's supposed to be doing and have dominion over the earth. 
But in the midst of this, Adam realizes there in verse number 20 that Adam, there was, uh, as he looks there, that Adam, but for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him. There's not a helper suitable to him to take care of things that he can't take care of. So verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall from Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. You say, well, why did God take a rib from man? I don't know. There have been some, well, theologians who have attempted to come up with a conclusion that, well, seems to be a possibly a good one. Back in the Middle Ages, there was a uh, medieval scholar there that said this, for since the woman should not have authority over the man, it would not have been fitting for her to have been formed from his head. Nor since she is not to be despised by the man, as if she was uh, but his servile subject, would it have been fitting for her to be formed from his feet. Matthew Henry, I think, uh, had this statement perhaps as he wrote his commentary and extended his thought on this. He just simply said this, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. Seems to be some possibilities there as you look at the rest of Scripture that that's an accurate statement. But as you look at this story and as uh, this woman is brought to Adam, he says this, Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then the statement, she shall be called woman, isha. And you say she was taken out of man, ish. That's a Hebrew word there uh, for man. And even in the naming of the man and the woman, there's this connection between them. But what you have at the end of this is divine commentary. You have a man that's brought to a woman and they are going to live together. And it's a commentary that then Moses by the divine spirit uses. And he says this, verse 24, therefore, because this happened at creation, okay, not through accident or anything else. This was intent by God that he did it this way. This is what should happen. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. This is a statement of what God intends for marriage. God created a man, God created a woman. The intent is, is that they become together and be a unit, much like in the, the terminology here as far as one. It's the same type of unity that's between the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that they're one. There's a unity between them. There's a unification. There's a like-mindedness, a like focus, and these things that go on that God intended from the beginning that man and woman uh, man and woman were to be together in marriage. They were to leave their families behind that they had before, that they were to cleave to one another, and that they were not to divide out. You go, how do you know that? Because when Jesus talked about marriage and he had to talk about marriage and divorce, you know what passage he went to? He quotes this passage. He goes, let me go back to the very beginning, and this is what God intended. Man and woman to be, men and women to be married and that they be a unit and to do things together that they could not do alone. That there is a unity that can accomplish things in this world. 
And there's a lot of things as you read that passage, you just go through, it casts aside immediately as you get into the Scripture. It casts out the idea of living together. It casts out the idea of falsely so-called marriage that people are trying to foist upon all of us. That marriage is between two people of the identical sex. That is not how God defined marriage. God defined marriage as something where two come together and they cleave to one another and they become a unit. They accomplish things together. And you see in verse 25 there that they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. There's an openness between them. And there's an openness before God. And so as you look at the story, perfect partner. Okay, all these things that are perfect. But there's one thing that I would like to add to this. Number seven is that there's a perfect presence that's here. Who's the presence? God. I don't know what it would be like, but you find that we're not given much detail of it until sin actually happens. But it sounds like God regularly, daily came down and talked and fellowshiped. The voice of God walking through the garden. It wasn't as if they were seeing Him, but they were hearing His voice. They knew He was there and He would communicate and fellowship with them day in and day out. I mean, everything that was gathered up in this story that's perfect is for the purpose of these individuals being able to fellowship with God. God did not create humanity and then leave them and abandon them. God created humanity so that they would be with Him. This is the whole intent as you go through the Scripture of what God is going to do the rest of the Scriptures after Genesis chapter 3 where mankind goes off on his own and does his own thing. God is trying for the rest of the, the Scriptures to work it out that mankind can fellowship with Him unhindered by sin and all of these other things that mankind can fellowship with Him in perfect everything. And so this perfect presence that's there, you suddenly realize that God created these beings not just to be little ants running around that you just kind of ignore or not really pay attention to. No, God created humanity because He wanted to fellowship. He wanted to communicate. He wanted to be with humanity. And God created you for fellowship with Him. To try and live life out of fellowship with him, you're going to find extremely frustrating because that's not what God originally created you for. You can try and find things in this life to satisfy and to make you feel good for temporary times. But God created us for fellowship. And as you look in chapter 3, you'll see when man attempts to go in a different direction, separation happens. But it's immediate where God says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, I'm going to take care of that separation. I'm going to send one who's going to take care of it, who's going to crush Satan's head. Why? It's not because he just wants to defeat Satan. No, because he wants to restore fellowship with the chief of his creation that reflects his own image. And what is seen in this chapter is that God gave mankind the best. Mankind had the opportunity to perfectly worship and serve God. 
But as you read through your Bible and as you go through it, salvation and death for Christ, in Christ, what you find is this, the opportunity to once again fellowship with God. As the hymn says, it's like a foretaste of what? Glory divine. It's a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like. Once you understand, I've been saved and I now can talk with God. There's not a sin that separates me because Jesus Christ has paid for this. And then what you find is that Jesus Christ said, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's in my Father's house that where I am, there ye may be also. And you go, what kind of place is it like? It's a perfect place. It's a perfect place what God originally intended for mankind. God is repairing a place like that for those that, of the, those that love him. They will one day be there if they've accepted the Son. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father. No one's going to approach the Father. No one's going to have fellowship with him but by Jesus Christ. And as you read the pages of uh, Revelation, as you get to chapter 21 and 22, you find a place there that is a place that you are headed to if you know Christ as your Savior, that's filled with a tree of life, a river, gems and gold, a creation unmarred by sin. I mean, that's what those passages there are telling us where it says that there is none of these things there including liars, adulterers and idolaters and, and all of these other individuals, the covetous, and these ones, that's not there. You go, why? Because God is once again giving us a place where we will be able to fellowship with Him, enjoy the bounty of His creation, but be able to fellowship with Him for eternity. God created us originally for that. That's why you have heaven and all of these things, because God is giving us the opportunity to do what he created us for, and that's to fellowship with him for eternity in a perfect place with all the provisions that you could possibly imagine. God has created a place like that for you to be a part of. The question is, is are you still stubborn like many have been throughout the ages and, and find this, that they're separated from God and they will never get with Him again, won't fellowship with Him, and they'll be separated forever. But Jesus Christ was offered to you for you to have the possibility of enjoying what you find in Genesis chapter 2. God's given His Son so that you can enjoy that type of environment and that kind of fellowship for all eternity, and it's in His Son. If you put your trust in that Son, that Christ, that was, a, that was offered as soon as mankind sinned, if you put your faith and trust in Him to one day enjoy what you see here that's perfect, God offers it to you. He wants you to be there. Are you going to be there someday? Lord, we thank you. I thank you for a passage like this, that we can just look at this, that this was your original intent for mankind. Men and women, for them to be a part of a place that though there's work being done, there's not really work being done because there's not all the difficulties going on and that there's the opportunity for abundant provision. Think of a tree of life that 
has its fruit in its season and has 12 seasons of fruit. Uh, the description there and the river of life that's there and all of these things. You've created us to enjoy blessings like this and you've made it possible at the great cost to you of your own son. Your son was separated from you on the cross. He bore our pain and our guilt and our punishment on the cross so that we could enjoy a perfect place and a perfect fellowship with you, the perfect God of the universe. Lord, there may be one that's here today that is in their own sin, wandering far from you, not in fellowship with you because of Jesus Christ. May they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's their only hope of of entering into a perfect place like heaven. May they understand that you have a desire for them to be there. So may they put their faith and trust. Lord, as believers here today suffer this week and go through difficulty, may they realize that this is not the end. That we live in an imperfect world right now that groans because of sin. That you one day are taking us to a place where none of that will be again. May we have that blessed hope and that confidence that you want to be with us for eternity in a perfect place you prepared. We love you. We thank you for the overwhelming grace and mercy you've given to us. And we thank you in the name of your Son who makes this possible. Amen.